Brother Clyde, was Horatio Spafford, was that written about that loss of his daughter's, was it the Titanic or another boat? It was a different boat. Yeah. And I think most of you know the story of that. If you don't, it was about a man who um, was traveling by ship and uh, the ship went down and when he, when he telegrammed back to his wife, who was not with them, he just said saved alone, had lost his daughters. And then that came out of that. So, you know, part of what we're dealing with today when we think about anger, you know, a lot of times anger revolves around circumstances. So we know from examples like that and other examples that the Lord is able to overcome even our circumstances to produce, to squeeze out of us, as it were, uh, his gracious work and produce, you know, a hymn like that, which I like it. Every time I sing it, I like it. It's helpful. I've had a few times when I really didn't care to be in the pulpit, maybe here, maybe somewhere else. And then that hymn was sung. Great comfort. Great comfort. Well, we are going to be looking at the subject of anger, bitterness, forgiveness. Brother David had recommended a book to me, and I've heard him recommend it to others as well. It's called Good and Angry by David Paulison. I listened to most of it the last couple of days. And it is a good book. It has a good dissection of anger. And there's some things here that I'll share with you uh, from him. Some good thoughts that help me further my understanding of how one deals with this whole area. The title is Good and Angry. It's a play on words, of course, because when we, when we want to say we're really angry, we say we're good and angry. And, of course, he's doing a play on words there that we use it in that way. And yet the fact is, is that God is both good and angry. Both of those are characteristics of our God, and both of those are characteristics, should be characteristics of a good Christian as well, um, who can be both good and he can be angry as well. So anger is a godlike characteristic, and we, as his creatures, are created in the image of God. God's anger was manifested before he ever created man. Because the angels who sinned against the Lord were cast out of heaven, were, you know, judged for their rebellion before man was even created. And Paulison in his book says, you know, Adam and Eve's response to the satanic suggestion and temptation should have been anger, actually. That would have been the godly response. But of course it wasn't. And we fell into the state we are in as human beings. What is anger? And, and for this part, I felt as though Paulinson was very helpful to me in thinking through, trying to bring it down to the 
what we call the brass tacks, what is really the essence, what is really the essence of anger. And it was very helpful to me what he was talking about. But he says anger is an expression, it's an expression against something. Anger says, I'm against that, whatever that is. Okay? Anger says, I'm against that. So that anger is a value judgment. You're making a judgment about something. And you're saying, don't like that. You're saying, that matters to me and that's not right. That emotion that we experience. So it is a value judgment and it's our reaction against what we believe is something wrong. Now, our judgment may be right and our judgment may be wrong. Not saying that every piece of anger is a right judgment, but it is a judgment. We are making a judgment about something. So that anger itself is not inherently sinful because God gets angry. And the scripture says in the Psalms, God is angry with the wicked every day. And that God has a perfect anger. We don't have a perfect anger. But we can have a right anger. And we can use anger for his glory, that which you can't eradicate. The idea is not eradicate your anger. (laughs) That won't happen any more than you can eradicate your human nature as a human being. Not talking about the sinful nature, but just who you are as a human being. You're not going to eradicate your anger, but what you have to do is understand it, control it, and use it for the glory of God is the idea. We are to imitate God in his anger. His anger is a righteous anger. If we're going to have an anger, it needs to be a righteous anger. The scripture says he is slow to anger. If we're going to imitate him, we need to get it to where we are slow to anger. And he is plenteous in mercy. So the other aspect and characteristic we have to have, even as we express this and experience anger, is that be sure that we are plenteous in mercy as well. Since anger is making a judgment, we can abuse anger. We can play God with wrong anger. We can try to control people by anger, make them afraid of us. There's lots of ways to abuse anger. And then bitterness, the other aspect that I want to talk about and think about, what is bitterness? Bitterness is when you hold on to an anger and you just maintain it. Because the idea of God's giving us this emotion is that we do something with it and that we do something with it right away. Because the scripture says, don't let it go down upon your wrath. I mean, the the sun upon your wrath. So anger has to be dealt with. Something has to be done with it and it has to be done in a right way. And if it is held on to over a day, a week, a month, years... That's bitterness. That's bitterness. And we know what bitterness is. When I I picked up a full glass of water this morning, I guess it had been here for a week. Not that that bothers me. Usually, Tara will tell you that. I drink everybody's water at home. Whatever I see, I grab it. But it tasted really weird. So something was falling out of the sky there into my water during the week. But when we taste something bitter, we know it. We know what it is. You know, like, that's bitter. It's not pleasant to the taste. It's not something that we want. When we take medicine, sometimes we take it and it's bitter. We take it because it's medicine, because 
We feel like it'll do us good. That's how I started drinking coffee. I hate coffee. Never liked coffee. Now, Tara has shown me how to make it to where it's reasonable. But I just took it. At first, I just said, I'm taking coffee as a medicine because I think it'll do me some good. But bitterness, bitterness. We all experience bitterness. Life can be bitter. Life is bitter at times. When Esau didn't get his blessing, Genesis 27, 34, the scripture says, and when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great, exceeding, bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me also, O my father. It was disappointment. We all have disappointments. And they're bitter. It's, it's bitter to be disappointed. Of course, Esau expected a blessing. His problem was he was expecting a blessing while he was snubbing God, making light of God, disregarding his heritage, apathetic to the faith. So disappointment was going to be a part of his life. And hard circumstances can make things bitter. Exodus 1.14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them to serve was with rigor, was with rigor. Now, because they were slaves and because they made it hard on them. Now, the New Testament and the New Covenant solution to this is found in the New Testament where it talks about a slave-master relationship for the Christian that the Christian can be made a slave and can still be joyful in God. And the reason he can is not because this guy's any better. He's still trying to make your life bitter and your life can be hard and bitter in that sense. But you can have the joy of the Lord within your soul because you are working as unto God. So ultimately, our employer is not our ultimate employer and a master isn't the ultimate master. God is for the Christian. For the Christian, we can work through this bitter experience of life by the fact that we are serving God in this thing. Naomi, story of Ruth. Call me what? Bitter. Mara. Mara. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. She was scared. I'm sure she was felt insecure. Her husband had died. A son died, another son died. All the males died. That was not a good situation for her in that day and age. And so being scared, being insecure, she felt this bitterness. What did she do? She did the right thing. I mean, she kept putting one foot in front of the other. She went back to the promised land. She went back to the people of God. And in time, God changed some circumstances for her and brought a Ruth along too, who was as good to her as a son who went out and worked. Hannah, you remember Hannah? She was barren. She was made fun of by her rival. She was in a polygamous situation, which is never a good situation in the scriptures. And it says that she had been made fun of by the other wife. And it says in 1 Samuel 1.10, she was in bitterness of soul. And she prayed to the Lord and wept sore. What did she do with her bitterness? It was a bitter situation and she was barren. And on top of that, she had people making fun of her. She prayed to the Lord. She went to God. It's, what else can you do? You know, you're placed in circumstances at times and with people at times that you may not want to be with. 
and are hard to be with and make things bitter. So what do you do? What she did was she took it to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's ways are never bitter. He's always gracious and kind and, and good to us. So she prayed and she wept. 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6 from our life of David that we uh, worked on. David was greatly distressed, and that's the word for bitterness, for the people spoke of stoning him, <laughs> this situation where the, the enemy had come and taken away the families. And what did, what did David do? It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord is God. That's what he did. It was a bitter situation to the point in where he felt danger. And, he, and basically he was thrown upon God. God at times puts us in bitter situations to where all we got left is to th- throw ourselves on the Lord. That's all that's left for us. Mordecai was betrayed and in great danger. He publicly fasted and wept. How about Job? Job lost his health. He lost his children. Scripture tells us how sore vexed he felt. He cried out to God as well. And then in Proverbs or Psalm 64, we have David. And David, of course, gives us every aspect of emotion in his Psalms. It says, who wet their tongue like a sword, bend their bows to shoot arrows, bitter words. Ever have bitter words given against you? Somebody who's brought you bitter words that you felt in your heart? He talks about the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Lie. Okay. Words hurt. They do hurt. They're painful. The guilt and the shame. It talks about the boy who gets involved in this pornographous relationship with the adulteress, but her end is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, the guilt, the shame of being involved in that stuff. Bitterness, bitterness. It's the consequences of sin. Jeremiah says your own wickedness will correct you. So at times the bitterness is our own sin and it's correcting us. Paul says to the husbands, husbands love your wives and don't be bitter against them. I think that's interesting that he peels that out specifically for husbands. Husbands, you need to be careful about getting bitter against your wife. A husband may not express it. A husband may keep it within himself and be upset with his wife and not really deal with the situation. The emotion of anger is there, but it hasn't been dealt with properly. And so it just stays there and it simmers and they become bitter against their wife. Family situations. When Esau married who he married, it says it was a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah, the word for bitterness. It was bitter. A foolish son, Solomon says, is grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. There's, there's difficult family situations in which we feel the bitterness of life. Protracted anger and revenge brings a bitterness. And we know it. We know it. And we know it in a way nobody else knows it as well where it talks about how in our heart we understand the bitterness. We understand the bitterness the way nobody else can understand it. So there are all these examples that we have. 
that we have to ask ourselves, are you bitter? Do you, are you bitter against God? Because ultimately, he controls everything. In the Reformed faith, we believe that in the providence of God, there's nothing that happens outside of his doings. And therefore, anytime we're bitter, we have to ultimately consider our own relationship to God. We can be bitter toward parents, bitter toward children, bitter toward a spouse, friends, employers, employees. So anyways, just to say, life can be bitter and hard. And we can get into this state. And at times, we believe that we have a right to be in this state. That it is our right to be bitter. They have offended me so many times. Do you understand how many times they have offended me? Over and over and over again. I have a right to be bitter. Because I have dealt with this in the past, but it's still happening. And of course, we go to Matthew chapter 18. Go there. Matthew chapter 18, and Christ helps us with that feeling of bitterness and how it has occurred over and over to us. 18 and verse uh, 21, and then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? This is an actual sin, and I forgive him. Till seven times. And Jesus said, I say not unto thee until seven times, but seventy times seven. So a classic passage, easy to remember, which is helpful to us. Because it's basically Peter is saying, where is the limitation? When do I stop? Where do I stop forgiving? These people that keep over and over again bringing uh, sinning against me and Christ. By saying seven times 70 doesn't mean you get a notebook out and when you get to 491, you're good. But what he's saying by it is that we always forgive. We always forgive. He comes to you seven times in a day and says, forgive me. You forgive him. You forgive him. I've heard the thing I hear over and over again, the way we work it out in our own minds and justify not forgiving is usually, well, if they've done it this many times, you know they're not sincere. So I'm not forgiving anymore. <laughs> you may leave that to God. God takes care of hearts and motives and things of that nature. You have no idea, no idea what's going on in that heart. You may have some inklings about things at times from outward behavior and actions. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are not allowed to judge motives because we're not God. The second Secondly, he, from that, he actually goes into, in the Matthew brings in the parable of the unforgiving servant after he talks about this, I say not unto thee seven times, but seven times seventy. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like a king that would take an account of his servants. He gets one who owes him 10,000 talents, this impossible amount. He couldn't pay. He's commanded to sell everybody into slavery. The servant falls down in 26 and says, have patience with me and I will pay. And the Lord of that servant moved with compassion, loosed him and he forgave him the debt, forgave him the whole thing. Now what he said, have patience with me, is 
That's a normal part of that story. It's a parable. So he's giving us an everyday experience because that's what we want, right? That's what we want people to have with us. Patience. Be patient with me. But then that's what we have to give. It's not just the be patient with me. If, if that's our attitude, and it is our attitude, it is a right attitude, a normal attitude, we need to be able to give that patience to others as well, which is a part of the solution of this whole aspect of anger that we have to have the characteristic of patience. So, of course, he, he forgives him this incredible debt. He, this guy goes out and finds a guy that owes him just a little bit, and he takes him by the throat and basically goes and throw him in jail. And the, the moral of the story of the parable is, if you don't forgive others, God's not forgiven you. You haven't experienced forgiveness. You don't know what forgiveness is. When God has forgiven you an, an inestimable amount in your life, and then you have a life in which you don't forgive others and you remain in bitterness and you just hate that it's obvious that you haven't experienced yet the grace of God. You don't understand the grace of God yet. Well, what about it's their fault? This is another thing that you get involved in with counseling oftentimes with folks, and you may have as well. I'm waiting for them to come and make it right. They wronged me, and I'm waiting for them to come and make it right. And I'm here if they'd like to come. Otherwise... I'm mad. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, in other words, you're coming to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come worship me. And then come worship me. Again, we can't say I'm waiting for them because what I'm saying when I say I'm waiting for them is I refuse to obey the commands of God. Because the command of God is if you know you got a problem, if you know somebody else has a problem with you, it's your duty as a Christian to go try to make it right. Now, you may not be able to make it right, and that's where Paul comes in in Romans chapter 12, and he says we live at as much as is in us is to be at peace with all men. They may not accept, you know, to make things right and to reconcile, but if you have done your part, if you have gone to them when you know there's a problem, even if the problem doesn't get fixed, then you are good, good to go to worship with the Lord because you have done what is your duty before God. So we might say, well, I went to them and they wouldn't make it right. They didn't make it right. Okay, so we go to Romans chapter 12. God doesn't leave us in a limbo. He doesn't say, well, you just got to live in agony for the rest of your life and mull over this situation in which things aren't right between you and put it in the name, whatever the blank is. You don't have to live the rest of your life in agony and over that fact. God doesn't put us in those kinds of situations. Romans 12 and verse 17 
recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible, as much as lies within you, as far as you can do, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place to wrath. So vengeance is a part, an aspect of bitterness. Okay. To prolong an anger, to keep an anger going and not deal with it, not give forgiveness, not handle the situation, to keep that there is a taking of vengeance. That is taking of vengeance. Basically, the vengeance is, I'm not going to deal with the situation, and you're not going to be my friend you know, until you come and make these things right or whatever. If you haven't taken the first step, if you haven't gone and tried to make it right, do whatever you can do. There is that aspect of, of taking vengeance. Sometimes taking vengeance is just, I'm not talking to you. That's vengeance. We think about vengeance as, you know, some of the movies where the bad guys get, something happens to them, they go out and slaughter everybody. That is vengeance. But vengeance can be very passive as well. So he says, don't avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath. That is your own wrath. <laughs> Give place to wrath. Don't, don't exercise this wrath of vengeance. For it is written, vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. I, do the, I, I, I deal out justice. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, you feed him. And if he thirsts, you give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is, this is the beauty of the Christian faith. And this is the beauty of all these commands. The commands are never a bare obedience. The commands are never a... I'm just going to grit my teeth and tough it out. That's never the way God deals with it. It's never the way Christ deals with it. It is proactive. It is supernatural. It is, here is a person that's done me wrong. I'm going to do them right. I'm going to be good to them. I'm going to be civil to them. I'm going to say hello to them. I'm going to continue the relationship, trying to be at peace in whatever way I possibly can, regardless of their attitude toward me. I'm going to actually do them good. I'm not going to go around telling everybody how much they've hurt me and how bad they are, but I'm going to keep that quiet because it's between me and them, and I'm going to be good to them. Why? Because I'm going to act like God acts, because that's the way God acts to us. It's a testimony, you see. It's a testimony. For some people, they will say, my heart's just too hard at this point. I can't forgive. My heart is hard. And it's an honest appraisal. I appreciate them being honest about these things. Hebrews chapter 3. And we get that feeling. If, if, if we get into a state of bitterness and it's prolonged for a long time. Hebrews 3. Verse 12, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort each other daily while it is called today, lest you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we may justify our anger and our bitterness, but it's a deceit, you see. 
Sin not only deceives us, but it hardens our heart as well. And he warns against moving away from God, an evil heart of unbelief departing from God. Because if in this area we decide to remain bitter and angry, we are departing from God's purposes, departing from God's plan, departing from that action and behavior which God requires of a Christian in order to, if at all possible, live peaceably with men. I can't forgive. I mean, and people feel that way. Matthew, and I'm giving you these texts of Scripture if your heart feels that way, so you can hear the words of God, the words of Christ, be washed by his words, because we certainly can get into a state in which it feels impossible to return from. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, and here's, here's a warning, it's, to say just that that's dangerous. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not just some kind of over-the-top warning that God gives. What he's saying is, again, that if you find it in your heart impossible to forgive people who offend you and who have done wrong to you, that you need to make your calling and election sure because it appears that you haven't yet understood the grace of God and you're failing the grace of God because the grace of God is great. It doesn't say, and let me, one of the things that Paulson in his book repeatedly talks about, which I think is really good, is that when we say these things, we're not saying to you, well, just forget about it. You know, because we are created in God's image, we do have memories. Okay? We can remember things. And there are hurts that are very deep, that are difficult to forget. Okay? And you may remember it for the rest of your life, but you can still respond to that memory in a right way. Okay? So it's not just this glib, just forget about it. Because there's things that we don't forget. But we can always respond right to it. Okay? And by the grace of God, at times he gives us a blessed forgiveness, forgetfulness about some things. To where if it's brought up, it's like, oh, I almost forgot about that. You know, There is a blessed forget, forgetfulness for the Christian. That if we get our heart full of God and full of service to God and full of other things, then some of these other things can go away. You know. God, by his grace, can do that. But I'm not being glib, and he, he's right to point that out. Some of these scars are great. There's people that have scars that I can't even imagine scars. Okay? I can't imagine what they've gone through. I, mean, I have been so blessed in my life growing up in a good Christian home and around the church. I mean, I feel like I have had almost no scars in comparison to, to people that I read about and what they grew up around. I can't love them. I can't love them. Now, you know, we we say, and true, you don't have to like people, but you do have to love people. You don't have to like them. There's a lot of people we don't like. There's a lot of things that are not likable about them. But we have to love them. 
And if we say, I, can't, I just can't love them, what we're saying to God is, I just refuse to do your commands. Because God says, love is this, it's kind, love, you know, believes all things, bears all things. And we go through the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. And he gives us this command to love one another. Read 1 John. It's like the whole of 1 John is talking about loving each other as a primary aspect of our salvation in Christ. So if we say, I just can't love them, maybe you're just misunderstanding what love is. Love is showing the character of God to another human soul. Okay? That's all it is. Not asking you to have warm, fuzzy feelings about him. Not asking you to have dinner every night with him. Not asking any ridiculous things. We're talking about having the character of God displayed to another human soul. Kindness, goodness, graciousness, even enemies. My, our, my pastor, Brother Ron, used to say it was, it was you know, doing the, will, the, the law of God toward another person. Here's the Ten Commandments. Do those toward those people. That's, that shows love to them. So I don't steal from them all the negatives. I don't steal from them. I don't commit adultery. I don't dishonor parents. You have positives and negatives. And then for couples um, who have to work through some of these problems, sometimes it's I can't have intimacy with them anymore. because And it comes from anger and it comes from bitterness in their lives. But of course, that reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul also says in that situation, we need to be able to work through these issues and get back together. Because he says in verse 5 of chapter 7, defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time to give, to your, give yourself to fasting and prayer, and then come together, lest Satan should tempt you. And he's not talking about separating out because you're angry with each other, because he's already told the Ephesians that that ought to be taken care of before the sun goes down. You know, what the example he's using is a religious example, actually, that you decide not to have sexual relations because you're going to spend some time in fasting and prayer. And then come back together because you don't want to be tempted as human beings and as a couple. So if, if, if we're not having times of intimacy anymore because of anger and bitterness, then that anger and bitterness just has to be taken care of. We've got to work through that and get back to a normal relation because of the dangers that it could lead to then an adulterous situation which could just destroy the marriage. And Paulison in his book talks about anger, that sometimes we talk about anger as though it's something separate from us or just like one part of us where he says all of you does anger is what he said in this chapter he said anger is you that's what it is it's you and what he meant by that he said the body gets agitated in the hebrew word it's the flaring of the nose is the way the hebrew word is for one of the words for wrath or anger adrenaline surges some people's face gets red Muscles are on high alert. The mind is involved. There is judgment going on. Judgments that are made and sometimes in a very judgmental way, not a proper way. 
Sometimes the mind replays the, the incident. You have got a tremendous, you know, brain which can replay videos, recall them over and over and over again. And not only that, but now it can not only replay the video, but you could maybe twix it a little bit to make it look even worse. Just like they're doing now. Tara and I have been looking at various things, um, and talk, discussing the young people's gathering that we're going to work on Christian sexuality in this whole area. But now they, the technology, you've seen the technology where they can take a picture, a face, and make it sing. And it's ridiculous and it's fun. So they can get George Washington to sing a modern song. And it looks great. I mean, the technology is fantastic. But now they also are doing technology in pornography to where people can get a picture of an individual and, and put it on a situation that's pornography and the acts so that you can pretend that it's that person that you want to be intimate with but you can't be intimate with and you get this porno stuff from somebody else that does this and put their face on it, you see. The mind, the mind what we can do with our minds. Anger is the mind. Anger is the emotions, the hot displeasure, the heightened, heightened displeasure. It's our actions which become aggressive oftentimes or recessive, either way. We either crawl into ourselves, simmer, or we explode outwardly. And it's the motives. And the motives are either godlike or they're self-righteous, one or the other. Either true anger can be godlike False anger can be very self-righteous. But anger is God-like for good or for evil. In anger, we're making a judgment and we're deciding somebody needs to be convicted and punished for what they've done. Okay? Now, the showing of mercy. The showing of mercy to others who have hurt us, who have harmed us. And again, Paulson says two things here which I thought were very helpful that what mercy is not, first of all, to clear that out of the head. Mercy is not being nice to people. Mercy is just, oh, I'm going to be nice to them. Mercy is choosing to seek peace and reconciliation for the good of that human soul. That's what it is. Not just being nice to people. Nice can be a lot of things and sometimes not even nice, not even good. Secondly, mercy is not a blanket acceptance of, all the, of, of evil. See, mercy seeks peace and reconciliation through a process, the process of truth-telling in humility. Paul deals with that in Ephesians 4. Hearing the other side of the person that you have been offended by, seeking a right state with God through repentance and faith, having a large and generous heart rather than being petty with people. But it's a process, just like Jay Adams talks about in his book on forgiveness, that if we, if we skirt the whole area of trying to get reconciliation, then we're skirting God's plan, and it can't work. You can't just say, well, pff, I'm just going to stay mad, but I'm okay, I'm forgiving him. No, no, you haven't. Now, you may cover a sin, and you may be able to cover a sin without actually going to that person, but if it bothers you, you haven't covered the sin. (laughs) 
And if it's still bothering you, then you got to go to the person. You haven't covered the sin. You haven't gone through the process. And God's process is, is yes, that we show mercy to others, but we go to the person who has offended us, said something about us, wrote something about us, put something on social media about us, whatever. And we go to them, and, and first of all, we find out, did you really mean this by this? Because a lot of times it's just misunderstandings about things at times. But you go to the person and you actually try to work the thing out. That's mercy. Mercy is caring about another human soul enough, enough that you're not just going to treasure and nurture and caress your anger. If you think anger doesn't please people, it does. This caressing, this nurturing, I'm going to hold this. It's very pleasing to the sinful nature. Because by that, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to go to them. I don't have to see if maybe I was wrong about this. I don't have to do any of those things. I set all the rules. I set all the parameters. They're wrong. I'm right. And it's always good. So that's, how we, that's why we caress it. So we need to be washed with the word of God, don't we? But I hope you can see at least... At least the process. You got anger, which is not in and of itself sinful, okay? Can be sinful, might not be sinful. You have bitterness, which is an anger held on to. That's always sinful because you haven't dealt with the situation. You have God's plan and purpose, which is to be patient, to be loving to go and try to bring about reconciliation. We have to do this in our homes. He talks about, he's, he was a counselor for some 40 years. He talks about some of these homes. And you get in these situations, the, the anger and the, the bitterness is just palpable. It's like you could cut it with a knife. It is so uncomfortable. Because in that home, they haven't dealt with things. And it can be that way in the church, too. And it can be that way in a society as well. When we don't take care of things God's way. Remember Joseph's brothers at the end of his life, after daddy dies? So you shall say to Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept. <laughs> he wept because after all of his goodness to them, they still thought that when daddy died, now he's going to get us. But he had forgiven them. He had. He had forgiven them. And, and, and people want forgiveness. They do. Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin this once and entreat the Lord your God that he might take away this death. Even Pharaoh himself, who was as wicked and hard, he wanted forgiveness, didn't he? Because we know as human beings, we need it. Compassion on poor, weak beings. Do we have compassion toward our fellow human beings who are poor and weak and sinful and wretched? Do we have compassion on them? Or do we act in a self-righteous manner toward those who offend us? Now, when the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord and the Lord said, hey, Moses, how about I just wipe them all out? 
and we'll start over with you. And what Moses says, now therefore, he said, yet now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray you, out of the book that you have written. That's how much compassion he had for the nation who deserved to be wiped out. And he also made the argument that you already told them that you're going to bring them into the land so it wouldn't, you wouldn't be glorified in this thing. So he's looking to the glory of God. Abigail, when she went to David and stopped David from killing her household, said, I pray, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, and you fight the battles of the Lord. It was humble. It was a humble graciousness. She hadn't done anything wrong. But she knew that she was standing in the midst of two fighting groups of men. But you see with the humility that she approaches it. And that's the way we need to approach it. We have to approach this whole situation with humility, with humility. David says, look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy toward all those that call upon you. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. And, you know, the greatest thing in the New Testament is the fact that God can forgive. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And God doesn't grant forgiveness without repentance. He doesn't. It's not a passivity in God. Because he says he will deliver his judgment to those who are impenitent. Okay? So, it's like, again, it's not just God being nice to people. It's God working in those souls repentance and faith. Because that's a necessary thing. If you have wronged somebody, you need to repent of it. You do. That's a part of the process by which you're healed. And if somebody has wronged you, you need to seek that repentance and forgiveness. And like I said, even if they don't and won't, you can still be okay with God because you've done your part. In fact, it says in, uh, I think it's in the book of Mark, where he says, if you're standing and you remember Somebody did something against you. In that text, it says, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, the relationship between you and them has to happen by going to them. But your relationship with God can be right by showing God, I don't hold a resentment toward this person. I am ready and willing to forgive. And I'm going to try to make this thing right. But as far as me and you, I'm not going to be bitter and I'm not going to, you know, hold this thing against them. And even if they don't, even if they won't make things right, I want things between me and you to be right because that's always what we want. So Paul in Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth, speak the truth in love, brothers. That's a proactive response to your anger, okay? When anger wells up in you, you're making a decision about something or somebody. You've got to make sure that your decision, your judgment is right. 
Most of the time, that means you're going to have to go and talk to somebody. And that you are putting on the new man. You are putting on a renewed mind. You're not going to deal with things like you used to deal with them in your old pagan days. Which is, I don't get mad, I get, I, I get revenge. You know, I don't get mad, I just get revenge. And there's some people that he talks about in his book, various reactions people have. Some people are very stoical about offenses. They're like, yeah, okay, I'll get him later. Or he'll get his. That's still not a Christian attitude because you're a stoic. Now, God's plan for anger is that you, that you manage it properly. You understand it, it's a gift from God. Anger is what allows you to understand when your child is rebellious that they need discipline because if you don't discipline them, then they're going to go on in this rebellion, dishonor God, and destroy themselves. So that sense of indignation that comes up in you as a parent when they're rebelling against you is right. It's just a matter of processing it properly and disciplining them in a godly fashion, okay? And when a civil realm sees an atrocious crime and says that crime deserves death, there's nothing wrong with that because it is a righteous indignation against something in which a whole society perhaps has been perpetuated against. So anger, anger is a gift from God. It just needs to be managed in the Christian Okay. And if you have bitterness, you need to deal with that. There's something there that you need to go back and, and fix. If you haven't gotten past something and you haven't gone to that person, you need to go to that person. And it needs to be discussed prayerfully. Try to, try to fix it. And if the other person just won't fix it, what do I do? I go on in my Christian life, rejoicing, still loving that person, doing good to them, and enjoying my walk with the Lord. Not living in terror or anger or anything else. It can be fixed. You can fix it. God has given us the process and the plan. And forgiveness it is. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So great for our children in their spats, great for us in our bigger spats, that ultimately I can forgive because Christ has forgiven me. And I can leave the vengeance and the full and final justice to the judgment of God in the end. All that will be taken care of. And I don't say any of this stuff glibly, again, because... There are people in this world who have undergone such atrocities. It is a wonder. The grace of God in them is a wonder. And it is. It's mighty. And it's powerful. But it's encouraging to me. So that when I hear him give an example of such an atrocity, where he talks about an Auschwitz of sexual abuse in this home for a little girl from the time she was an infant up to the time to 13 when the authorities finally got her out of that home. When he talks about that, and then he tells us that the grace of God has saved this girl and that she is working through these things and she's able to have her own family 
That tells me how great the grace of God is. How beautiful the grace of God is. How beautiful forgiveness is. So let us give that to each other and honor God in it.